Humanity is stuck in this in-between space where we need a radical transformation of our society and our economy, but the old gatekeepers of that economy are not willing to let go. They own the TV stations, they own the newspapers, they own the court, they own the cops, <laughs> they own the politicians. Welcome to episode 5 of Turning Earth. We're just over halfway through the series now. If you haven't listened to the first four episodes, I recommend going back and listening from the start. The following episodes will make a lot more sense if you've heard them from the beginning. So far in the series, we've taken a walk through the Gera, a small part of the country where there's still some wilderness to be found. And we've heard the story of deforestation and land grabbing that marks the history of this island. Local activists have shown us how the capitalist economic system, with its narrow focus on profit, creates sacrifice zones for resource extraction and we start to examine the ideologies that govern this system. But what about the people that apply these ideologies? What role does the government play in facilitating capitalist land grabbing and resource extraction? In this episode, you'll hear from many of the voices you've heard so far in this series. Through explaining what's happening in their local context, both north and south of the border and across the Atlantic, I hope you'll pick up on the common problems which, though experienced locally, are systemic in nature. Much of the series is focused on the gold prospecting licences which were recently granted by the Minister for Environment, Eamon Ryan, who is a Green Party Minister. We actually didn't really expect Eamon Ryan to, to grant the licence. The first thing we done was established whether or not there was any pressure on the government to grant the licence. If, if you get a prospecting licence under the legislation, there's what's called a, a guarantee of renewal built into the licence. But what happened here was the company changed. Galantis Gold has subsidiaries, we'll say and um, OMA Minerals were the, was the company that had the first two prospecting licences here. So they didn't apply for the for renewal, it was Flintridge Resources. They, they, they applied for, the, for this new, as a new application. And um, so there was no, there was no um, pressure at all there was, on, on, on the government to, to grant it. And given that Eamon Ryan campaigned against gold mining and that Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael who are in government with, with the Green Party were saying that they didn't want gold mining in North Leitrim. We were very surprised that he granted it. Like it was a big shock, you know. But that's strange. I didn't know that because I, I I heard he had granted it already, but he assumed he had done it under duress. From no, 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 no. He there was no duress, no pressure. Like we have loads of emails from government telling us that there was absolutely no pre-existing lien, we'll say, or or in any regard. It was just based on current policy. Now, what, what, what people in the Green Party have told us that's coming back from Eamon Ryan was that because they included base minerals in their application, which they all do, so it's, their interest is in gold, but because they, uh, in, they included base minerals in their, in their um, application that he didn't feel that he could, he could not grant the license. Stuff that's not really commercially viable here. You know, this company, Galantis, they wrote a report back in 2012 before they applied for prospecting licenses and sort of establishing that this was an area that should be focused on for gold. So like the minister granted the license that, that he didn't need to grant and knew full well that the, 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 that the only thing that was viable here was, was gold mining. So I really feel that rural Ireland is very much under attack at the moment. My principles would be very much green and that's how I was brought up and that's how I live my life. But I think in general, or maybe at the top, 
and I have no political affiliations I never had. I just feel we had great hopes that there'd be a better green agenda, but it seems to have sort of just ended up in a box ticking exercise. Uh, I mean, to grant under a green minister to grant exploration license for, for gold, a luxury item, it's not a necessary item. Of all people, like a, a green TD, giving out lessons like that, and I remember in Dublin at, at the fracking, him holding up a banner, or I held up a banner along with him, because he was against all that type of stuff. And I seen another photo of him with him and Fidelma, him holding his photo where he, that he was against the gold mining in Sperron. So it's not good. The rationale for the green betrayal is based on the, the wording of, of the programme for government. And it's not just about environmental issues even. They reneged on some of their really basic principles. For example, the Occupied Territories Bill was agreed by all parties in the dial except for Fine Gael. And with two of the parties in negotiation, Fianna Fáil and the Greens, you would think obviously, oh well, that's... And that was within the programme for government until hours before the programme for government was issued. And then the Greens capitulated. If they had held firm on that, it could have changed the whole situation in relation to uh, Palestine, Palestinian equality within the EU. And I don't know why they reneged on that, but as soon as they reneged on such a basic principle, oh, well, they'll renege on anything. For example, the wording on LNG in the programme for government was incredibly weak. It was loose wording about policy, which was just... It reminds me of Seamus Brennan, saying, the Fianna Fáil minister, saying to them when they first went into coalition, you're playing senior hurling now. Yeah. They don't know how to play senior hurling now. They don't, it's like they either don't know what they're up against or they willingly take what they're up against. And that's betrayal if you ask me. So I'm not surprised, although it is, it is also shocking that they risk their image internationally of a green minister licensing gold mining in an area of that relies on horticulture, agriculture, tourism, all the uh, benefits of, of a clean, pure landscape. And they're going to risk it. And all they can say is bleat about, oh, it's only prospecting, hardly any, it hardly ever results in actual mining. They've exposed the community to endangerment. And it's not the first time, and those of us who've been following the record know that's what they do by practice when they're in government. In 2007, I voted in a general election for the first time. I voted for a Green Rep, and this resulted in me completely losing faith in them as a party and ultimately losing faith in electoral politics. It wasn't just that, I was also having conversations with friends and comrades at the time about the necessity of revolutionary change rather than reformism. And why did this election have such a dramatic effect on me? Because the Greens did a complete 180 on many of their central principles at that time, like they did in the recent government formation. For example, their opposition to the M3 motorway, to the Shell Carb gas project, and, as Donal reminded me, to US military use of Shannon Airport. They reneged on so much then that we've, even, we've almost forgotten to mention it this time. It was also reinserted into their policy before they went into this coalition. 
uh, on their core issues. They're not they're not things that you wear as a kind of costume decoration, like a like a medal, yeah. you know, on your of 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 aspiration. They're real principles, and if you sell out in them. We all know, we're not stupid, we know what the kind of concessions and gains balancing act that's done in developing a programme for government. But if you renege on basic principles, don't go in, stay in principled opposition and have another election and wait until things change. And everybody with eyes in their head watching the Irish political system knows if they'd done that, there would have been a huge change. I asked Donal why he thinks the Greens bend on their core values so much. A lack of class analysis would be one in their whole makeup. They're they're really their disregard for class as a kind of a as a construct within society, and also a kind of a general performative uh, aspect to their campaigning, even on environmental issues. An awful lot of blah blah and very little, comparatively little, what, what Jim Key is here, our guest here from Dirty Calls, the churning work. Which <laughs> is really like, it's not just turning, it's churning is what we need to do. And I, I, I would like to be known as a bit of a, of a reliable churner. <laughs> Donald's assessment of the Green Party could be applied to most of the party political establishment. Much of what passes for politics is really just the spectacle, the representation of work rather than any real work. Prime examples of this are the numerous statements over the last year from different Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael politicians acknowledging that the housing crisis and healthcare crisis have spiralled out of control. These statements have yet to be followed by any meaningful action. They need to convince the majority of the population that they are working for them, but as we will discuss later, in reality they work for a small number of business interests. Why is this? We have local town and county councils and we have TDs representing each county at the national level. How is it that the needs of the people are left neglected for so long? We got huge public support. There was two and a half thousand public signatures within our objections within a month. Uh, we got cross-party with Leitrim County Council and Sligo County Council across the board that they would um, uh, give us uh, full support and they did. They brought a motion uh, asking the Department of the Environment to, to not grant this. Um, and are there, are there green councillors on those councils? There's no green councillors, but saying that 23 green councillors did uh, bring the motion as well for it not to be granted, uh, throughout Ireland that is. And look, it's not really about right or wrong here. I mean, the Green Party and I suppose Minister Ryan is in the, in the position that he's in and he granted. But we need to remember this is government policy, going back a long time, attracting in this investment and asking these companies to come into the country. You, you have to start petitioning UTDs, your councillors, although the, the Clare County Council actually asked the, the minister not to grant these licences. Really? Straight up. Mm. Yeah, they felt it was underhand when the applications came in a few days before Christmas. Mm. Um, and, and, and no one knew about the deadline until even in January. Oh, that was a t tactical move for sure. Put yeah. Them, put them in at Christmas. Yeah. yeah. They did the same in Tipperary, I think. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So they also were not very pleased that the council were not informed in any way, not even parks and wildlife people, nothing. Now, but the area we live in is an SPA. There's like national heritage areas here. There's a huge uh, protected bog. And like our neighbor uh, pointed out so often, it's like when these areas were deemed special protection areas, every house got a leaflet about what was gonna happen. 
There was a load of public meetings and information coming from the government to explain to everybody the changes that had to be made in, from an agriculture point of view, from tourists, from just living here and everything that it would affect. And it's really hard to then think that a mining company can come into that same area without a notice. Uh, there was one notice in a free paper a few days before Christmas. Like, no widespread information, no liaisoning with the community, no, like, uh, free, prior, pre, or, you know, consent, or nothing. It's, so that that's underhand. Fidel Kane highlighted in the previous episode that local communities are not consulted or given proper information as extractive projects like this move into their area. It's a common thread with all of these potentially controversial projects that locals usually find out because of a small ad in the local paper or a small notice on a board somewhere. So while the state don't make unbiased information easily accessible, the locals then have very little time to inform themselves and get organised. This unwillingness to engage with communities on potentially controversial issues is a key point in the recent anti-migrant protests in Dublin and across the country. Groups of asylum seekers are being dumped into poorly resourced communities in the countryside and working class areas of Dublin. The locals were not engaged with the law ahead of time. Much of the disinformation and misunderstanding could have been avoided if there was dialogue ahead of time between the government and local communities, and if proper facilities were put in place. Instead, the state set in motion a process of ghettoisation. This refusal to interact with local communities leaves room for far-right organisers to exploit the frustrations of the people, and justifiable fear and anger gets transmuted into racial hatred. In the last week, masked men attacked a migrant encampment in Dublin. It's only a matter of time before someone gets killed, and this situation suits the state perfectly well. If we're busy fighting each other, they can keep going as they are. We heard examples earlier of four different county councils that asked the Department of Environment not to grant the prospecting licences, and they were all ignored. In the first episode of this series, I talk about how the Free State Government disempowered all local councils in a response to anti-treaty republicanism. We're still dealing with the consequences of that, as county councils across the country have very little meaningful power. When I spoke to Eddie from Treasurer Leitrim, he told me how county councils have been able to assert power and control over the local area in the past using the county development plan, but that these powers have since been rolled back. The, la the last campaign in Ireland that related to gold mining in the Republic was Crow Patrick. So do you, you, do you remember that? Um, no. Glen Carr Minerals, I think they were called or something. They, they, they wanted to get planning permission for a mine on Crow Patrick. And then the Kenny stopped that. And then that, that created a, a case that went on in the Supreme Court for 20 years because what, what he done was he put a ban on gold mining into the county development plan. And then it, that was upheld in the court. So that meant that at the local level, that the local government had all these, had the power to stop something like a gold mine. So that was a quite significant case, you know. It was an important event anyway, but it, what it does, it showed you that there is opposition to gold mining in Ireland. And gold mining has been stopped before in Ireland. And now, since then, all those powers have, have sort of been taken away. So do you, do you remember when um, councils in the, on the east coast, we'd say, were, they were zoning land for building that wasn't in line with government policy? There was a lot of that happened in the satellite towns around Dublin. And that was on the basis of, of Enda Kenny being able to ban gold mining in Mayo, showing that the local authorities' power had the power to, to make decisions at that level, you know? Right, just by virtue of having something in the development plan. Yeah. Is yeah. that watertight? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a lot of that's been watered down since, and they're trying to take away those powers. The government passed various pieces of legislation to centralise and maximise control over the planning process. 
This would not be a problem if there was still democratic access and the needs of the population were being addressed. But as we will see later, companies have greater influence over the state than people do. With planning, you go to the local authority, your county council. But with forestry licensing, it's directly with the Department of Agriculture. There's issues with that alone because the, and the Minister for Agriculture is responsible for funding forestry. They're responsible for overseeing forestry licensing. They're responsible then for enforcing issues where the forestry licenses are not delivered correctly. They're a kind of gamekeeper and poacher at the same time. And you can't be both. So what we see is that, and they're very influenced, we believe now at this stage, by the industry. And the forestry industry is like any other, it's there to make money. There's large investment companies putting large portfolios of land together. And they're influencing what the government does because they have access to the power government level and they're saying they're saying things like oh the jobs are affected the construction industry is badly affected you know we 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 have to import more timber now because we can't get enough timber out of the forests in ireland and that would be to kick back against the fact that we were commenting on the licenses because what happened was when we started to do that and others it's not just ourselves uh, the licensing system began to grind to a halt because we were pointing out lots of different snags and the system wasn't built to be effective because it was only a single um, license or appeals committee and they met in person up to the pandemic in Port Leash. The Forest Service is a section of the Department of Agriculture based in Johnstown Castle. So the application goes to the Johnstown Castle. It's overseen by the local Forest Service inspector and they're regional and they go out, supposedly, go out on site, look at it and fill in a whole pile of tick boxes. So then it goes to Johnstown Castle, Department of Agriculture, Forest Service, and they, that effectively is the minister that approves the license. And these were free, when we started initially, it was free to observe. And then you could go, once the license was issued, you had, I think it was a month or two months at that time to make an appeal to an independent Forestry Appeals Committee, was called FAC Forestry Appeals Committee. And they were independent, although appointed by the department and the minister, independent. So they'd review the points you'd made. And they used to hold their appeals, as I said, in, in the Department of Agriculture building in Port Leash. And you'd have to attend in person. So we attended numerous appeals. So you'd make your, your appeal and you'd wait. And then the judgment or well, decision of the appeals committee would be announced. And then after that, you can go to the courts. We have 28 days from the Forestry Appeals Committee to go and make a judicial review on their decision. And as you go, and, and initially when we started, the observation on the license was free and the appeal was free. But in 2020, the minister brought forward legislation that put a 20 euro charge on the observation and a 200 euro charge on the appeal. So now we're spending many thousands a year Making these. What was the rationale for doing that? We're just trying to stop us doing it. Yeah, but did they, did they make any kind of... Well, they said they wanted to bring it in line with the planning process. Right. That if you go to the planning office and you have to take out the files, it costs money and the staff have to be. And that we want to put it in line with that. But we would prefer that forestry licensing was with the local authorities. Because they are local. The Forestry Appeals Committee and the, all the foresters and the Forestry Appeals, uh, the Forest Service staff, all know each other. Many of them had been in the industry and come into the civil service and they're all looking at, the way we see it is that many of them are looking after each other and they're, 
and, and, and the Department of Agriculture is licensing them. Um, some of the inspectors worked with the car industry companies and, you know, their colleagues are making the applications. So, you know, it's a, if it was independent with the local authorities, at least they're not foresters. And like all of the people looking at these were foresters. There was no ecologists, no environmentalists, no sociologists. They're just pure foresters and they're looking at timber, 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 timber. I think that, that the word forest and forester is a bit, well, it's not a misnomer, but I think it conjures up a very different image in people's heads than what it means in reality. Oh, yeah. Um, like when people think forest, they think nice forest with dappled light and undergrowth. And when they think oh, of yeah. Forest, yeah. They think of someone who mines the forest or, or, you know, harvests the timber when necessary. But this is a very different beast to that. Well, what I would say is be, hardly being cynical, but being realistic, you know, the forestry, forestry in Ireland is largely it's the same as timber, timber production. See, and if you listen to some of the narrative from the industry, it's a crop, it's harvested, it's put in, and it's purely for money. Like, you know, it's, oh, it's all about the timber, getting timber out as quickly as possible. And they'll talk to you about the phenomenal growth of the timber in Leitrim and places like that. And that's fine, but it's all about, and it's like, you know, tons or cubic meters of timber per year out of the acre or the hectare mm. um, and that's that kind of speak is is all you know purely capital uh, money in and money out yeah, you know yeah. it's not about it's what's happening in that land like if you look at there's 30 32,000 hectares I think of Leitrim planted that's a huge amount of land mm. and yeah it's a huge amount of timber on it um, and if that was mixed forestry, it'd be a very different thing. As Brian highlighted, what little access people have to the planning process got shut off or limited as soon as it became problematic for industry. Some of the things Brian highlighted are common problems across many sectors. So-called independent bodies being appointed by the department they're supposed to be reviewing, and the revolving door between extractive industries or big business and the civil services and other state bodies. One of the most flagrant examples of this conflict of interest is the direct provision system. Direct provision is a system of essentially open prisons for holding asylum seekers. Massey, movement of asylum seekers in Ireland, have been campaigning for years to get the system abolished and to give asylum seekers the right to work. Lucky Kambula, who you'll hear more from in later episodes, here discusses some of the concerns and doubts over the state's commitment to abolish the system. A, sim- another a, si- a similar system, yeah. with a different name. Yeah. With the same bosses, with the same capitalists that are, are running... Uh, direct provision because you see for instance now to just give you a quick example of the uh, the emergency hotels that have seen gold in direct provision a lot of owners of property owners hotel owners they have seen gold in dealing with asylum seekers and migrants and refugees they have seen gold in that hotels big Big hotels close their business to general public holiday makers and all that and open it to the Department of Justice and Department of uh, Children to house people that seek asylum. Why? Because it's a sure case that you will have steady income. Crown Plaza that is decided not to renew their contract with, with the department, had about 350 residents there. And they charge per day, per person, 
hundred euros. So in one year, in one year alone, by housing asylum seekers, they are making a profit of twelve million six hundred euros just for housing these people. And if you look at that and uh, think what is it that they would be making if they were operating the business as, as they normally would do because of the fact that low season, high season, you don't, you, you're not guaranteed that you're going to have how many guests for that particular day, you know. So this one is a steady income. And remember, they are recovering from not making any sense during the COVID. So it, it made economic sense for them post-COVID in 2021 to house the people that seek protection. Not that they cared about people that seek protection. They cared about the money that the, 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 the people that seek protection gave to them. Because 2020, they made a loss. 2021, they made a loss. Only at the by this, I think they started taking people there from, from October last year. And now, a year later, we are we are had enough. We are not renewing your contract. We're gonna go back to to the to the normal hotel kind of setup. So that goes with all these other hotels. Like Grand Hotel was a a posh hotel at one stage, hosted weddings. But the owner there he is not scared to even say that he made more money dealing with refugees than hosting weddings yeah, yeah. For, for people. He, he, he made it. Now he's, he's, he's flying, he's everywhere in Spain, he's always in Spain because money is just going in, going in. People are living there like sardines. Mm. They're putting mail now there in halls. They've got more than 170 people in one room. Jesus. In a hall. That's the, the Grand Hotel. Is a play, the Grand in, Hotel in Wicklow. Wicklow. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah. Mm. It's a sorry, 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 sorry situation. And yet people think that they are doing a great job. Yeah. A great job, yeah. It brings money to them. But the lives of the people are, are in misery. Mm. There's Aramak. Not all the centers, but some centers are run by Aramak. Mm. Like in Cork, Athlone. Is run by Aramak, mm. uh, which a uh, couple of them are run by Aramak. Ar Aramak is well known for running prisons in USA. Okay. Uh, not not very good reputation, and uh, reputation. And there is uh, there are there are companies, there are private companies that like Mosley, for instance, Matoski. Mm. Uh, they've got ties, you know, within the government. They're, that's why they run things their way because nobody can can say anything yeah they've got the big word from i mean at some stage they donated some money for 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 election campaign to the, the ruling party the records are there so they they do their things to oil to keep their machine going with money yeah. to keep it going that's why they can do whatever they can expand and they do what anything that they can do because once you taste that money once you taste it doesn't matter. Money is money. Mm. Money is money. So that's what happens with them. Aramark were paid 9.5 million euros over five years for just one direct provision centre in Athlone. The centres are usually kept in the bare minimum condition with very poor quality food. 
so a lot of that money is pure profit for the owners. Mosny Direct Provision Centre is owned by the McCluskeys, who are financial donors to Fianna Fáil. There has long been a revolving door between Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael and big industry, for example Brian Cowan being appointed to the board of Topaz, who were a front company for Shell in Ireland and have since been rebranded as Circle K. Cowan's fellow Fianna Fáilers Ray Burke and Bertie Ahern were the ones who created the extremely generous licensing terms under which the Shell Car project and the Great Oil and Gas giveaway were set in motion. How is this democracy? When government and corporations are made from the same people, from the same class, how could the mass of people ever get meaningful representation? You know, we end up with bad planning because we don't have a, 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 a democratic um, functioning government. You know what I mean? Mm. So when, when you have a good argument that should win, it needs to be able to win, you know? And, and we proved that at, at one particular time that was possible. But I, I'm not sure that everything that's happened since is to make sure that doesn't happen again. Yeah, yeah. If you think about that planning bill, like they've tried on a couple of occasions to try and make sure that people couldn't object to these projects, you know? Mm. Like rather than trying to comply with the law, they, they try to stop people from being able to object, you know? If, if projects need to be objected to, people should have access to the courts when they need it, you know? Mm. And to try to remove that. So when, you, like, the, like the Green Party are in government and that's happening, you know? You, you, would, you couldn't make it up, you know? Yeah. Like, the Green Party could have stopped Chan LNG. So we ended up with this formal policy that would have, that would have, um, should have stopped Chan LNG, but the government never used the, the planning legislation. So there was a section that they could have used in the, pla in the planning bill mm -hmm. that would have meant that they directed Umbrella Panola under the Act not to grant permission, but they, they didn't use it. You know, so now there's a planning application and, and Borpanala could actually grant permission. And, and the Green Party will be putting their hands up saying we did everything we could, but they actually didn't do the thing that they could have done yeah, yeah. with the powers that they had. And, and, and that's just very sad that we're in that situation, you know, that mm. they didn't have, the, that they weren't strong enough, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Because we shouldn't have to be fighting with the Green Party. You know, they're, they, they, we shouldn't have to, to, to be fighting with them. Like, Yeah, yeah. You think you could take that for granted, all right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, there was no Green Party when we were fighting Bracken. You know, there weren't. There was no government TD. And we were successful. And now they're in power and we can't win. That means that people are harvesting the votes from the work that's happening in communities, you know, resisting yeah, um, yeah. bad projects. And, and, and the harvesting of those votes is actually becoming a barrier to those um, communities winning those, those, you know, those battles. Like. Do you mean they're putting their faith into the party to solve it rather than... Well, you see, when we, when we build environmental movement, that should, that should not be used to, to destroy progress that the movement's trying to make, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's a big problem, like, you know. You know, being able to take those votes from, from that movement and put them into your pocket in order to sell them for power, you know? Yeah, yeah. There, there has to be more to, the, to, 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 the, to an environmental movement than that, yeah, you know? Yeah. I was surprised they got in the last time, actually, because they did the same thing in, when was the, the yeah. shortly after the crash 2008, was it? The, course, and we, and we supported them going in, knowing all that, yeah, yeah. on the basis that we thought it was our best choice you know it was that they were promising to to do that and they had it agreed like i mean it was in the program for government you know now maybe it will still land for us you know but 
and maybe it's not easy to be in government, you know. Mm. But 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 I, but all that's happening in government is that Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael can point to the Greens and blame them for difficult decisions, and 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 that seems to be their purpose, you know. Yeah. That they 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 get to do the things that that they know need needs to happen, and yet they get to blame the the the, the Greens, you know. Mm. But what but but what ha what's really happening in the middle of all of that is that. That, that Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael are, are, are kind of acting like populists, you know. In order for them to stay in power, they need to polarise the, 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 the spectrum, you know. They need to move people to the left and to the right, you know. And we've seen that. So you'd wonder if, if, if um, they even believed in, in climate action at this stage, you know what I mean. But, but we know that they do, you know. They still want to access the votes from the people that don't. You know what I mean? So we, what we're seeing anyway is we're seeing the, 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 the rise now of, like when we were ban when we were involved in our campaign back in 2000, you know, from 2011 up to 2017, you know, towards the end of that campaign when we were in the, in the doll discussing those issues, there wasn't people standing up and saying, you know, wonder, you know, challenging the idea that climate change wasn't real, you know. But now we're, we're we have, like we have TDs, um, like the Healy Rays, we'll say, that are driving um, and, and lots of Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil TDs down there that are, that are working just in line with um, New Fortress Energy trying to bring in a frac gas import terminal. Yeah, yeah. Like that, that, I don't think that, like that's, that's a very, it's very sad to see that we're moving in that direction, you know what I mean? That further illustration of the spectacle and the games of party politics highlights the need for revolutionary change. The establishment parties are dedicated to a broken methodology. The system of majority government means that once a party has the majority, there's very little access for the population to democratic decision making. Debates occur, but they're performative. Because of the party whip system, it doesn't matter what way constituents want their reps to vote, because the decisions are already made by party leaders. When I asked Eddie about the success of the anti-fracking campaign, this reality was highlighted by the peculiar situation in 2017 of the minority government. Campaigners won a nationwide ban on not just fracking but all oil and gas extraction. There was, there was another thing as well that we were just very lucky, you know, and like you have to be lucky sometimes. But the the minority government um, that we you know we ended up bringing forward a ban at a time when um, there was a minority government. Mm. So that meant that um, Tony McLaughlin, as a government TD, could bring forward a bill um, that that. That, that could actually progress mm. so it put a lot of pressure on on government and a lot of pressure on everybody to look at what was happening you know mm. just for, for for people listening who might not be familiar with the timeline what the, that's 20, 2016 so, 2017 so, well it was it was passed in in the end in 2017 but it would have been 2016 when most of the activity happened you yeah. know and right. a minority government that means basically the the leading party doesn't have a solid majority, so that there's that they have to get agreement from across the across the aisle. Yeah. yeah. So like uh, what I remember about it was, and the Kenny was Taoiseach at the time, and um, he said at one point that he was going to be the chairman of the doll. You know. Mm. So really, the government's role was, apart from on important financial matters, you know, that that they were going to um, allow the parliament to to, to operate, um, and. In other words, that if they lost a, a vote, it didn't mean the government fell. Mm. So then there was then the debate in the doll was actually important because it, it could sway votes, you know. 
and we were lucky enough to win. Like what we done, what happened in the end was that the campaign went much further than we ever expected. When it got to the door, we were trying to ban fracking, which can be seen as unconventional gas. But we ended up banning all exploration for all gas. So we, we, we banned every, the government, the, 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 the parliament banned, went much further than where the campaign started. You know? Yeah, yeah. And that, that, was un, that was unbelievable. So it, it had a life of its own because there was real democracy. You know what I mean? There was yeah, a, yeah. The debate carried on, moved on, and, and, and went way ahead of... There was nobody in control. You know what I mean? It just had its own life. That situation Eddie describes sounds like what democracy should be. Issues raised locally go up to the highest levels and are debated. But the reality we are left with is that most debates are functionally mere performances, as ultimately power lies with the majority party. We're governed not by representatives of the people, but by a ruling party and their cemented ideology, in this case, neoliberal capitalism. I'm left wondering, how do we make that peculiar situation a permanent reality? How do we make a functioning democracy? This podcast project is partially supported by Glushucht. Glushucht paid for the hosting of the podcast and covered my fuel costs so that I could, I could carry out these interviews. Many more hours of work have gone in since, and I'm trying to make the work sustainable, so if you'd like to help keep the project going you can do that by going to patreon.com forward slash turning earth and subscribing for 250 a month or a fiver a month you can get access to extra interviews and audiobooks and other extra material so if you have a few quid spare please throw it our way but if you can't afford to subscribe and you still want to support the podcast please like and share and review it and recommend it to some friends the state favors corporate needs it's an imbalanced situation where the actors with the most capital in this case the mining companies are able to shape the narrative completely. The community are not given a chance to hear the full picture, to be given unbiased facts. The companies use a variety of greenwashing tactics to win people on side. Videlma and Cormac from Save Our Sparrows will give us some examples now. They've given out mm-hmm. seven schools, a hundred uh, trees each. Mm. Now that is nothing. Nothing. Mm. You know, compared to the damage they'll do by removing mm-hmm. the bog here for their infrastructure, by abstracting half a million gallons of water per day, every day of the year, for 20 years from the bog around here. And peatland's supposed to be the best carbon store, and that's mm. what they're wanting, wanting to do in their plan. Pardon? I didn't know it was bog. Oh, yep. it is, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Peatland all around here. We're up in the mountains. Yeah. And uh, and yet, so then to ease their uh, carbon, you know, footprint, they're, uh, as, as Cahill said there, they've bought um, 100 trees each for seven schools. Now, they haven't named this. In fact, well, one of the schools that was named, whenever that school was approached, that school assured us they hadn't got any trees from Dalridian and they certainly wouldn't be taking any trees from Dalridian. So it's a, it's a, be interesting to see if that's, you know, a white lie. Yeah, but yeah. Um, they're also um, contributing to a water purification scheme in Cambodia. Now, well and good, that'll be great for the people of Cambodia, but it doesn't reduce the damage that they're doing here. Mm. And, that, and they're buying cooking pots for uh, some community in Africa. And again... Is it, will that ease their conscience? You know, it still it do, it doesn't reduce what the damage they're doing here with using three million litres of diesel per year uh, for 20 years. That's what they, uh, is in their planning application. They started off with 4.3 million and then after uh, two years they, they actually reduced it to 3.3 million. 
litres of diesel per year and the fumes that come from that and you know I mean the government's saying they're going to run out uh, stop you know producing diesel cars uh, I mean you know th there's no concern about the damage that's been done here to the local environment and to the health of the people and it'll spread further afield and affect people further afield. The state don't just aid the companies passively by failing to inform the public they're also given financial aid through tax breaks, waiving of fees and so on. Extractive industry, which in all these cases doesn't create any downstream local industry, is given free use over public land and infrastructure. And that timber that's been put in a truck and taken down the roads and that has its own impact. Like I think Leitrim County Council have closed about 10 bridges now and roads in the county because they're not fit to take this kind of weight. And so they're damaging the infrastructure. There's so many, uh, so many other issues, yeah, yeah. you know, and then you know, there's no bond to repair them, so the taxpayer has to go and fix the roads or redo these bridges. And if you're using the infrastructure, you should be paying for it. You know, a toll in the roads or whatever. I don't know, but or put a bond on this because it's it's heavy industrialized processes. The timber is heavy, like. And last Sunday, a ship left Sligo Port with thousands and thousands of logs, tons of logs, and it was heading for Inverness, and like. You'd wonder what's the logic of that. Them trees probably came, a lot of them, some of them would certainly have come from forestry in Leitrim, yeah. Sligo, probably Mayo, um, or, or Scommon. And they went in Veres, what for? You know, are they going to be pulped? Yeah. Like, why is there no downstream economic activity or industry from that? Because yeah. all you need is a truck driver and two people to operate the machines. And in a couple of weeks, you'd fill that ship. But all that carbon has spent 20 years accumulating in our hills, in our land. Yeah. It's brought to the port in Sligo and shipped off. That doesn't make sense, from, at least to us, from a perspective of a carbon, because yeah. that carbon has been taken out of the country. It doesn't make sense in terms of biodiversity, because you, if you look at those sites where that timber is taken off, it's, it's like something you'd see in the World War I photographs. Like it's just complete and utter devastation. Um, it's... You know, and it's, it's very hard to figure out what kind of system does that kind of thing mm. to, to, to the environment. And like, even in the winter time, we'd see, you know, the, the harvesting usually takes place when the sap is down on the trees in the winter. Now it's extended, but that's when the weather's wet and like the machines are heavy, the timber's heavy, and the soil can be absolutely destroyed. We've seen soil flowing downhill and you know, the sediment from that goes into the water courses, the water table. So there's a whole range of issues. These are symptoms of imperialism. All this environmental destruction and infrastructural expense just to export some raw materials and the profit goes to private coffers. We could have socially owned heavy industry, diverse forestry with downstream industrial development and job creation. But instead, due to an entrenched methodology and a narrow focus on profit, capitalists reap the benefits the public deal with the costs. Uh, you don't have to pay taxes and stuff either. Like they get away with, there's no rates to pay in buildings. Yes. And they get, just, uh, everything seems to be free for them. Like uh -huh. and even the roads, as I say, the roads that they're using to draw stuff out, it's the, the people with the ordinary cars was paying to get the roads ready for them because it's, they're not even paying taxes. Uh-huh. We see their exploratory costs are reimbursed their exploratory costs and their development costs to the tune of 
So something like RHA, just not as good, that I think RHA was 160%, mm. but they're getting all their costs uh, reimbursed, so they're really not out any money. Mm. You know, they're it's, making money. They're, making they're, money. Making they're money. actually making money. And sure, they're getting free policing. The police announced last September that they are going to provide their service free to gold mining companies or to mining companies. Uh, they have to be present whenever they're using explosives, whenever they're transporting explosives on site or from, mm -hmm. you know, and the, and because Dalridians say they will be using explosives twice a day, every day of the year for 20 years, sure the police will have an encampment here, mm -hmm. they'll be here all the time. And people have bad memories of, of the police over the years of the troubles. You know, this community uh, really, uh, you know, would have a very negative impression and that's not going to be helped now by you know the news that the police are going to be working for the gold mining company. Well if we go down to the gate there, if we went down to the gate of the mine today there's liable to be three load or four load of police there within 15-20 minutes and there's people in the town phoning them, looking them, they can't get them for hours like you, can't, right. do, you can't get a policeman now if you're looking them like. But they're just on they're on their call all the time, have you? Yes, know? that's right. And I mean over the last few years they've start started this uh, process of criminalizing the people here who are trying to defend the area, uh, people who are trying to protect the water in the air. And you know, with trumped up charges like um, you know, blocking roads or um, aggravated trespass. One man has actually been in court, I think it's 17 times, on the char one charge of aggravated trespass because he chained himself to the gates of Dalridian's compound. Dalridian have no planning permission and at the time the man did it, they had no, their prospecting license had expired and they had no prospecting license. And, the, and furthermore, in fact, they actually, in January 2014, they'd got a three-year exploratory permission and there was 44 conditions attached and one of the conditions number 41 was that they would restore the site to its original conditions and they never did that and the council then didn't uh, enforce it the council didn't enforce it well they apparently they decided in 2021 that they would enforce it i mean how many years later they should have been enforcing it from 2017 but in in October, November 2021, the council said that they were going to enforce it. Then Dalridi, in the very next day, applied for a Section 54, which means that that's an application to not comply with that condition. And that is now going to the Plan and Appeals Commission. It's actually going through it at the moment. It's absolutely ridiculous. A permission they got in January 2014 for three years and that would bring them up to 2017 and we're now in 2022 and they still haven't complied and the conditions haven't been enforced. So that tells you, you know, how the authorities are facilitating them, really, and not enforcing. And Dalridian boasts that they have had over 100 meetings with government departments in order to progress their planning application, their words. So, the, you know, and I think part of the problem is that there's no history of mining here and the government departments relied on the mining company for expertise, relied on their consultants and that has led to policy capture. So the policies that are being devised by government favour the mining companies. Policy capture refers to the tendency of narrow interests, basically the interests of capitalists, to dictate government policy and take precedence over the needs of citizens. The ideological conviction that what's good for big corporates will lead to benefits for the people has been proven through decades of implementation to be a fairy tale. 
Policy made in the interests of a few will benefit a few, not surprisingly. You may remember Brian earlier on talking about the revolving door between forestry industry and the state's forestry bodies, or Ray in the previous episode talking about the Halliburton loophole, which was a legal exemption for oil and gas extractors from the Clean Air and Water Acts in the US, giving the most polluting industry an exemption from anti-pollution laws. Socialising the costs while the profits are privatised. Who does that benefit? As we've already discussed, the main supposed benefit of allowing industry to flourish, jobs for locals, in almost every case turns out to be a false promise. One thing is, they're going to try and tell you, oh, look all the jobs you're going to create for you. You know, you're all going to have work and everything else. Let me tell you what, okay? Back in the States, okay, the local people have about 2% of the jobs because they brought anybody, everybody in from Texas, Oklahoma, you know, everywhere else they brought them in to do the jobs. The locals got, okay? So they brought people from the outside. Well, it's going to be the same thing here. If they bring this here, they're going to bring people from everywhere else in the world to run this. And locals are going to see the shit end of the jobs. So basically, they're going to give you the hazardous stuff that they don't want dirt. They're people to touch. They're, and basically, they take over the town. I mean, we used to have a great blueberry festival and, you know, chocolate and wine festival. You know, it was from all the different businesses in town and everything else. It was great, you know. And now it's called the Cabot Oil and Gas, you know, Blueberry Festival. Cabot Oil and Gas, you know, 4th of July parade, okay? It's all about Cabot. It's all about the oil and gas industry. Nothing about the people. You know, it's, it was our town. They all just changed the name of the town called Cabotville. You know, take Susquehanna County, call it Cabot, Cabot County. Because, I mean, it's just, you know. I find it fascinating, though, that you are getting local opposition. You know, the fracking's already been done there. People can see the effects of it, and still. Well, there's two sets of laws. Law for the industry, no law for you. Yeah. Is basically what it comes down to. The judges are corrupt. You can't find a lawyer that wants to do anything with this whatsoever. You know, we might have a hand, very small handful of lawyers that are willing to do something, but they don't have the money to fight the industry. And we don't have the money to pay them. So okay, so, you, money, you know, you, 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 you're in that choke phase, okay? Same thing with health, okay? The, our, in Pennsylvania, we did what, our governor did what was called Act 13. A doctor cannot sell anything on a worker comes in that's been contaminated or anything else. You got AIDS, you got herpes, you got anything, but it's got nothing to do with the industry whatsoever. If the doctor talks about it or even puts it in a report, he's fired, gone. Yeah. So it's very hard for any workers or anybody that's been contaminated because it's affected landowner or anything else to get health care because of Act 13. Now, even though we finally got Act 13 overturned, the hospital and the doctors are still operating the same way because they're afraid of what, well, you know, we do all the drug tests for them and we do all this for them and they don't want to lose the money. Our local TV station won't do any reports on anything that's going on up there now. And me and my friend Craig, we called down there and talked to the VP of the news station. He goes, we're not going to do that. Goes, you think we're going to lose $2 million worth of advertising? So basically they turned and said, you do any more stories against us, we're going to pull our advertising. So they basically, they own the TV stations, they own the newspapers, they own the court, they own the cops. 
you know, they own the politicians. You know, they came in, they came in, gave our fire department, built them a brand new firehouse, and gave them brand new fire trucks. So they own the fire department. So if there's a fire with anything to do with any of the pads or anything with industry, they go out, no sirens, no lights, no other, they just drive out. Because they don't want anybody to know what's going on. The state, which is supposed to represent the citizens, is in the pocket of industry, here and in the States. In many cases, they're the same people. The media, who are supposed to give a clear picture of what's happening in the world, are paid for by industry. Extractive industries are so capital rich, they can buy their way through any obstacle. The court system, supposed to be the arbiter between people, supposed to give citizens access to justice, again is stacked heavily in favour of anyone with access to capital and legal connections. We haven't had much interaction with government. I did take the Northern Ireland Environment Agency to court through a judicial review because they had invited Dalradian to, um, they had granted Dalradian a discharge consent in 2017 to discharge nine heavy metals into the Owenkilu River. And the Owenkilu River is you know, special, specially protected, supposedly, because of the freshwater pearl mussels. But whenever I looked at the levels that they had granted for mercury and arsenic and lead and cadmium and chromium and copper, etc., um, they were in excess of what's laid down in the Water Framework Directive. So I took a judicial review against the Northern Ireland Environment Agency and Dalridian were a notice party. And after 23 months, they conceded and the discharge consent was squashed. But like again, I mean, they reverted back. That was the 2017 one. They reverted back to one they'd got in 2014. And then I couldn't take a further judicial review because it has to be taken within six months of the decision being made. So the 2014 one was granted in 2014. It had to be within six months of the 2014 one. And at that stage in 2014, we didn't know about Delradian. Yeah. They were working under the radar. So it's, um, it's a very difficult uh, position. But like I would say, just we wouldn't hesitate again if we thought that we had grounds for a judicial review. I wouldn't hesitate. It is an expensive option. But uh, I mean, what price do you put on your health and on your children's health and your grandchildren's health and the health of the community and the environment that we have here that has been handed down for, from past generations? And what... Why did it take so long? Because that seems like a fairly straightforward thing if like the, the levels of metals is higher than what's in the actual the law. Surely that's a fairly simple case to pass through. Why did it take 23 <laughs> months? Well, you would wonder. <laughs> you would wonder that. And I was running up to Belfast to the High Court every <coughs> month, uh, you know, and the case would be adjourned there. They, they had two barristers and two solicitors and um, they... Uh, like for the first sort of year I was representing myself as a personal litigant and then after that I got a team together and uh, because it was very stressful mm. and uh, they you know it was being put off and put off they always had some excuse they needed to get an expert I'd got an expert from the United States who was going to speak you know and he sent in a report well, he said that the Northern Ireland Environment Agency was the most ineffective that he'd ever come across in his life. He said he had worked in every continent on the earth and every country, named numerous countries, and he said that he had never come across the like of them. He said they'd used the wrong data, they had made mistakes in their calculations, they didn't have the right equipment to measure the levels of the heavy metals that were being put in. And he had a, a list of errors that he detected in their work. 
and he said it was the worst he'd ever come across. So that's, that's our environment agency. Yeah. You see, it's not independent. It's part of the Department for Agriculture, Agriculture, Environment and Rural Affairs. And really, it's that whole, you know, the economic policy of going for growth is an inward investment. The government's always talking about inward investment. And they give companies, Dalradian were offered a grant of £326,000 in 2014 by Arlene Foster when she was the Minister for uh, Trade and Investment. And, uh, you know, so they invite these companies in, they give them grants and that. And the companies think it's straightforward, they're going to get planning permission. They think they're on the pig's back. But this time they haven't reckoned on the community here and the people that are supporting us throughout Ireland and throughout the world that, you know, are determined that this land is not for sale and this area is not going to be polluted. And, we, you know, we will fight it at the moment. We're trying to do it, you know, with objections and uh, protests and, uh, you know, information and that. But, you know, we have to wait and see what the future will bring. We need to completely switch the balance of power. Systems that should serve citizens are serving corporations. People aren't being properly represented and the system is bought and sold by extractive industries. In later episodes, we'll take a closer look at how people are organising to change that power balance. But ultimately, it's not, it, it might not be the farm families that take the hit. It could be, it could be the big corporations. And if that's, if that's the way we can make it, I would, I would encourage that that's the way the policy should move. Let the corporations take the hit. I think for once, that's got to be the case. In, in all sectors, we say, you know, a lot of large private companies have been making huge amounts of money. Even you look at the energy companies at the moment, like making record profits. Uh, I don't see any reason why, you know, individual citizens should have to take the hit. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I would rather see those companies take the hit for that. And the same applies to, to agriculture. That's been the trend across the board for the last number of decades. I mean, Public it, taking the it, hit it accelerated for with the with the pandemic. You can mm -hmm. see it like the rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poor. It's been exemplified now by the the rail strike in in the UK. You know, they're what's getting thrown at them the whole time is oh you're making people's lives harder. We're already paying loads for trains, and their response is yeah you're paying a lot for trains, and we're not getting any of yeah. that. It's all going to the big companies. Like I think they got away with it when they bailed out the banks in the last financial crisis, and they said well look, if we can get away with that, we can get away with anything because yeah. essentially that you know that that was a huge transfer of of, of public wealth to to private pockets and. And they're just back in business. So, like, I mean, yeah, I think, look, we're not, we're not in a situation where we don't know what the problem is. And I think we're in a situation where our political and economic structures, to an extent, aren't really capable of dealing with the problem. Citizens are ready and I think are able to, 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 to embrace local food systems and, you know, public, good public transport and decentralised energy. Uh, the problem is the, the, the big kind of actors in that system, you know, who are making money from it and their enablers who would be the kind of the, the main political uh, systems aren't either willing or able to, to make that change. So like, mm -hmm. I mean, we're stuck, humanity is stuck in this in, in between space where we need a radical transformation of our society and our economy, but the old gatekeepers of that economy are not willing to let go. And like, I mean, that, it, there's a crunch time there we're hitting, which was, you know, and I think people are more and more aware. I mean, that people's houses are literally going on fire, and you know, because of climate change. And you go, okay, at that point, you know, how much of this are we going to tolerate? So we're certainly, I think that's all going to come to a head.